It is time for Patreon birthday shoutouts for August. I actually have two belated ones I need to do. So I want to say happy birthday to Katie and to Tiffany. And now on to the August birthdays where I had a special request for the birthday blower horn thing. So if you don't like that sound, I know I've gotten some mixed feedback on it. You may want to skip ahead. So I want to say a very happy birthday to Jerry, Shannon, Kaylin, Beth, Nicola, Lisa, Kimberly, Vertrice, Mary, Jenny, Elizabeth, Susan, Jenny, and Marielle. Thank you so much for your support on Patreon. I appreciate it so much, and I want you to have an amazing birthday month. You know we celebrate the whole month. And we just need this next year to be better than the last one, and I hope that is true for you. So happy birthday, and here is our favorite birthday horn. In 2020, a young Amish woman went missing while walking home from church. A combination of eyewitnesses and security cameras led the police to the culprit, setting off a string of events that would lead to a controversial plea deal. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. If you're new, welcome back. If you've listened before, I appreciate you taking time out of your week to listen to the podcast. For those listening to this on YouTube and feel like you've heard this story before, well, you have. I covered this in a live stream a couple of months ago, and I said I would do a full podcast episode when the case was resolved legally. I know I have way more people tuning in here on the podcast, so I know for tens of thousands of you, this is new content. But for some of you, this may feel like a repeat. You can skip towards the end to get just the update section, or you can listen to the whole thing, or I will see you back next week. I have followed this case from pretty much the beginning. My friend Kim alerted me to it as it is in her area, so I do want to thank her for bringing this case to me. She also helped me get some extra sources for it, so another thank you for that. The bulk of this episode research, however, does come from the arrest affidavit, which will be linked at the top of my sources, so you can read it yourself if you're interested. This case started on Sunday, June 21st, 2020, when Linda Stoltzfus left her church around 12.30 in the afternoon. Linda lived in Burdenhand, Pennsylvania, which is in Lancaster County, and it is home to a large Amish and Mennonite population. Linda was Amish, and as is the practice in Amish communities, church was not held in a formal church building— but rather at the farm of a member of their faith. Linda had attended from 9 a.m. until noon with her family. After services, she helped wash up, she spoke with someone for a little bit, and then she headed home with her shoes in hand. The walk from the farm where the church was being held to her house was exactly one mile. Figuring Linda was barefoot and casually walking, Let's say it was probably 20 minutes door-to-door. 
Linda's plan was to walk home and change out of her formal Sunday church clothes and then head out to a youth group event where she was bringing a dessert. She planned to be there until 11 at night. When Linda didn't come home after the youth group meeting, as expected, her parents checked her bedroom and found that her church clothes, which were a tan dress, a white apron with a white upper part called a cape, and a black head covering, they were not in her room. Knowing that she intended to change out of that outfit before going to the youth meeting, they wondered what had happened here. They asked around and learned that no one had seen Linda at the youth meeting. The last anyone saw of her was when she walked away from the church meeting barefoot. That was around 12 hours earlier. Her parents contacted the police and reported her missing. In the morning, a massive community and law enforcement search was organized. This is a very rural area. There are only a couple of roads, and there was only one way to get from where the church service was held to Linda's home, and it is just go down one street, turn, and go down the other. It's not like there were multiple paths cutting through a neighborhood. Linda's father said that she was not the type to cut through fields, plus there was a decent-sized creek running between the properties that would have prevented her from really cutting through even if she wanted to. But the searchers did go along the road and then back through those fields between the farms, and they also searched the creek for any sign of Linda, and they found nothing. The searches continued on Tuesday, and the FBI joined the case on Wednesday, June 24th. A public statement was issued pleading with Linda to make contact and confirm she was okay if she did leave on her own. The investigating officers did have to consider that possibility that Linda had run away. That's a consideration for anyone who leaves without a trace. Because of Linda's lack of access to a car and public transportation, they knew she would have had to coordinate running away, and maybe she had confided in some friends about it. But no one the investigator spoke to heard even a whisper of such a plan. No secret boyfriend or contraband cell phone or anything like that. And no one believed Linda would have left like that. She was her usual happy self in the days leading up to her disappearance. She was very close with her large family. She had a lot of younger siblings she adored. She was very involved in her community. She tutored children with learning disabilities. She worked, she participated in family life, and she appeared to be happy in her faith. We never know what's going on in someone's mind privately, but there were also no signs Linda made plans to leave outside of talking to people. There was a search of her room. It was found to be neat, tidy, with nothing missing except her Sunday clothes. Linda had a bank account, and she hadn't recently taken out any money that she would have needed if she did leave on her own. 
When Linda hadn't shown up at youth group, her friends had assumed she wasn't feeling well and decided to just stay home instead because Linda was reliable and dependable. So if she said she was going to be somewhere, she was there unless she was ill. The investigation very early on was leading away from a runaway situation and being treated as a suspicious disappearance. Community searches continued that first week while the investigators focused on following up on hundreds of tips that came in. They particularly wanted to talk to anyone in the area who was outside between 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. on the day Linda went missing. Even if they were just driving down the road or out on their porch, they may have seen something they didn't even know was important. About a week after Linda's disappearance, on June 29th, the police heard from three witnesses who did provide what turned out to be vital information. The first two witnesses were a married couple named Isaac and Sarah. They did not live in Bird in Hand. They lived in Gap, Pennsylvania, which is about 20 minutes from Bird in Hand, which is where Linda lived. They were also Amish, but due to the distance, they belonged to different communities. They did not know Linda. They were walking on Sunday, June 21st, around 1.30 in the afternoon, when they saw a red or reddish-orange four-door car driving north on Amish Road. Sarah saw an Amish woman in the front seat in a white apron and black bonnet. The Amish communities in Gap do not wear the black head covering to church, so she knew whoever it was. She wasn't from that immediate area. Linda, as we know from what her parents have said, had been wearing a black head covering when she was last seen. Sarah thought it was unusual that the woman was riding in a car in her church clothing since that wasn't usually done. But nonetheless, Sarah waved at her, which is also an Amish tradition, and the woman didn't wave back, which also struck Sarah as odd. And the reason Sarah remembered this interaction so clearly is because of how many pieces of it stood out to her as unusual. When Sarah saw a photo of Linda, she believed it was the woman she saw in the car. Her husband, Isaac, said he noticed the driver of the vehicle and described him as a white male with dark hair and a dark beard or mustache. The same day investigators spoke with Sarah and Isaac, they also spoke with another man in Gap named Gideon. He was also Amish, and he reported a similar sight, a red sedan with an Amish woman in the front seat, who was wearing a white apron and a dark bonnet. His sighting was about a mile away from Sarah and Isaac's. And like Sarah, Gideon thought it was odd for an Amish woman to be in a car in her church clothes, and of course the bonnet stood out since they didn't wear the black covering in that area. I feel we're rather fortunate that these witnesses were Amish because I would have noticed none of those things because I wouldn't have known So it doesn't surprise me that the eyewitnesses who did see something and thought something looked odd were Amish. To lend more support to these sightings is the fact that Gideon didn't know Sarah or Isaac, and at the time of his statement, he actually had no idea anyone else had reported essentially the same thing. 
that eliminates the possibility that these statements were influenced by the other person's statement and false memories were planted while people sat around discussing the case. That does happen, but it did not happen here. Whether the woman was Linda or not wasn't 100%, but this was a solid lead. On July 8th, another tip came in, and again, it's about a red car. This was from a man named Isaac, who not only lived in Bird in Hand, but he lived on the same street as where the church service was held. Isaac said that on the day Linda went missing, he was on his front porch, and he saw a red sedan drive down the road coming from the direction of the church, pass his house, then turn around on another street. The car paused for a minute, and then it headed back towards the church. Isaac described the driver as a white man, but due to his dark hair and complexion, he may have been Hispanic. He said that it was between 1230 and 1245 when he saw this car, and the man was alone in the car. So this is the third independent report of a red car being driven around by a dark-haired man. We have Isaac putting the car near where Linda was last seen, around the time it was suspected she went missing. And then we have three witnesses who saw a similar car with an Amish woman later in the day. This red sedan was looking more and more promising as far as leads went. And then a big but unexpected break came in this case. I don't know about you, but when I think of rural Amish country, my first thought isn't check security cameras, except that's exactly what they had here. The footage they found was shot not far from Linda's house. At 12.42 p.m., a red sedan drove past the camera, which is confirming Isaac's time frame. The recording was sent to the FBI Regional Computer Forensics Lab to take a look and try to enhance it they were able to see that there was, at this point, something in the passenger seat. It appeared white in the footage, which I know doesn't sound like much, but we do know Linda was wearing a tan dress with a white apron and a white cape. And the cape is the top part that goes from the waist up to the shoulders, and then the apron is tied at the waist going down. So if it was Linda in the passenger seat, she would likely appear to be a white object with the cape and the apron. Though they could not see the driver or the passenger much better than that, at least not enough for an identification, they could tell quite a bit about the vehicle. It was a second-generation Kia Rio, which puts it between 2005 and 2010, and it had a spoiler. It had some light damage to the passenger side and a sticker that said LCM on the trunk. Unfortunately, the license plate was not readable. Even if this car was not involved in the crime, they were in the area within a 10-minute window of when Linda would have been kidnapped, so they could be a witness. But let's be honest, the investigators at this point suspected involvement. The police ran a search for cars in the area that matched the make, model, and color, and they got an unusual hit on it. Two days after Linda disappeared, 
someone had called in a suspicious vehicle that matched that description. This occurred about three miles from Linda's home in Ronks, Pennsylvania. It was around 5 p.m. on June 23rd when a man named Jonathan saw this red Kia behind a business. The driver got out of the vehicle and walked around the building, peering in the windows. He then got back into his car and left. Jonathan didn't think too much about this until the car came back and backed into a parking spot near the railroad tracks. That's when Jonathan decided to call the police. By the time an officer had gotten out there, the car was gone, but Jonathan had taken pictures of it while it was there, and that included a picture of the license plate, and it also included a sticker that said LCM on the trunk. This car was a match to the one in the security footage, and the license plate linked it back to 34-year-old Husto Smoker. The police learned that he worked in Gap at Dutchland, Inc., so they drove out there and saw his car in the parking lot. They noticed there was damage to the passenger side. There was a missing front hubcap, and there was some damage to the passenger side rocker panel. When they compared the damage on this car to the damage from the car on the security footage, they had a match. The damage matched, the make and model matched, and so did that LCM sticker. This was the car they were looking for. The investigators held back, though, waiting for Husto to come out of work. They then followed him back to his apartment and confirmed that is where he lived. The next day, they showed up at his apartment to question him. They asked Husto if he knew Linda Stoltzfus, and he said no. They asked if he was in the area when and where Linda went missing on June 21st, and he said he was not. He did confirm, however, that he had possession of his car that entire day, but no, he hadn't been out there. Of course, they have his car on video, so they knew he was lying. He just didn't know they knew that. The day after this interview slash denial, on July 10th, 2020, the police searched the area behind the business where Husto's car had been seen. They noticed some dirt that looked recently disturbed. Buried about six to eight inches deep, was a white bra and a pair of dark foot stockings knotted together. The family was able to confirm that these items were consistent with Linda's clothing. Even the knot in the stockings made sense. She was walking home barefoot, so she would have tied them together as to not accidentally drop one. So we have a car that was seen near where Linda went missing, and then it was seen where some of her clothing was buried, and the owner of that car lied to them. The investigators at this point knew they were on the right track. After pulling cell phone records, they were able to further confirm that Husto's phone was in the area where the clothing was found from 2.30 until 3.30 in the afternoon on the day of Linda's disappearance not just the day his car was called in for suspicious activity. The investigators then sent the clothing for DNA testing. On the same day these items were found, one of the investigators watched the security footage from Bird in Hand from the day Linda disappeared. What he did this time was back up to a point before Husto's car was seen 
with the white object in the passenger seat and watched to see if that car appeared any earlier than that point. This was the time before and leading up to what they knew at this point was a kidnapping. While watching, the investigator watched this in slow motion, enlarging the area where the car came into frame. He noticed at about 1236, the vehicle pulled over on the west side of Beachdale Road, which was the street Linda lived on. That's at least what it looked like the car did. The car was out of frame at the point it would have come to a stop, but prior to that, it looked like it was pulling over. Four minutes later, a single person came walking south on the east side of the road. Since this was in the direction of Linda's house at the time she would have been walking home, it was very likely her. At 12.41, a second person appears. This person crossed the street from where the car had gone out of frame and approached the figure assumed to be Linda. There was what has been described as some movement near the head area of Linda. It's not 100% clear what this was. This footage is blown up and enhanced, so it is a little grainy. The investigator said to him, it looked like something was being put on her head. The two people then walked back to the car where it had gone off a frame, and then a red Kia Rio with the spoiler came back into frame, and it came from the direction the two had walked off to. Though Linda getting into the car, more like being forced into the car, was occurring off frame, it was pretty clear what happened here. They just watched Linda's kidnapping, and it happened in less than 30 seconds. They were able to follow the car again on security footage when it passed a Mennonite school, and then we have the witnesses in Gap picking up from there. The police went to Husto Smoker's place of employment on July 10th and took him into custody. They interviewed him, and he initially denied again that he was in the area, but then he was confronted by the security footage. He certainly had not anticipated that. His story then changed. Yes, he was in the area that day, but he was just driving around the back roads, killing time. He said no one else was in the car with him. He didn't do anything to Linda, but he did confess that he had been drinking that day, so he was probably drunk driving. But the police had the evidence they needed, so Husto Smoker was arrested and charged with kidnapping and false imprisonment. The investigation continued largely in the hopes of finding Linda and answering the question of what really happened here. They pulled more cell phone records, and they were able to place Husto's phone in all the key areas backing up all of the witness statements. They could also show that Husto went back to the spot where the clothing was found several times after Linda's disappearance. In addition to being there on the day Linda went missing, he was there the next day, three times on the day after that, and then three more times over the next four days. Husto's phone also showed that he had texted his brother Victor 15 times between 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. on June 21st, and he even sent multimedia images. 
So in the two hours after Linda's disappearance, he was in regular contact with his brother. I will be clear that Victor has not been charged with any crime, and the contents of those messages and images have not been released if they are known. While it's natural to side-eye and wonder why he was contacting his brother immediately after kidnapping someone, it's also possible that Husto was pretending everything was normal. He was maintaining normal phone activity in order to establish a digital alibi. We are so often suspicious when someone turns off their phone for hours or has a sudden gap in activity, so it's possible Husto was accounting for that by keeping his phone in constant use. It would be pretty much the only thing he accounted for, sure, but it is possible, and without more information, we are just speculating. Now let's get away from the speculation and onto some solid ground. We have DNA from the clothing. DNA on one of the stockings came back as a match to Husto Smoker. So let's pause and talk about who Husto Smoker is. Many sources say that Husto was born in the Dominican Republic, and at the age of seven, he was adopted by a Mennonite couple in Gap, Pennsylvania. It is also reported that he was found living on the street. However, it's also been said that he, his brother, and his sister were all in an orphanage, not literally on the streets, and they were in Costa Rica, not the Dominican Republic. The Mennonite couple then adopted all three children. The family who adopted Husto Smoker were not conservative Mennonite or Amish, so while it was a religious home, it wasn't like an Amish upbringing. He had access to modern conveniences and technology. He went to a public high school. He wrestled on the wrestling team. But because he did grow up in this area, he did have an understanding of Amish practices and culture. In high school, Husto was a B student. He was an athlete. He was actually an all-star wrestler and just a fairly average kid until after high school when he was a 20-year-old man. Husto and his 18-year-old brother, Victor, were arrested after they committed four armed robberies together in a five-day period in August 2006. The two used a BB gun as their weapon. Both pleaded guilty and were sent to prison. Victor was released in 2016, but Husto spent 12 and a half years behind bars before he was released in February 2019. So Husto was on parole when Linda went missing. After getting out of prison, Husto worked to try to make ends meet, working an entry-level job at a manufacturing plant. It appeared he was working to get his life back on track. And now here he was, the prime suspect in a kidnapping that the police believed was really a kidnapping and murder. And he was really the only suspect. And I don't mean that in the sense that the police had tunnel vision. I mean, the evidence all led to Husto Smoker. It just dropped on the investigators' laps over and over again. Solving a case like this where the perpetrator and the victim have absolutely no connection to each other can be very difficult. In this case, it really wasn't. Husto Smoker left breadcrumbs to his front door. 
And now that they knew who they were looking at, even more evidence showed up. The day before Linda went missing, Husto bought alcohol and long cuff latex gloves. At 10.13 on the morning of the disappearance, Husto bought two eight-packs of disposable gloves, three pairs of shoelaces, and two pairs of boot laces. When they searched his apartment, car, storage unit, and work locker, they never found any of these items. They never even found boots or shoes that would need all of these shoelaces he bought. Very few people, to be honest, would need five pairs of laces all at once. A witness at Husto's apartment complex said that on the day Linda went missing, at around 3.30 in the afternoon, Husto thoroughly cleaned his car. This time and date were confirmed when they checked Husto's social media. He actually sent a Facebook message to someone indicating he had just cleaned his car. So, of course, when they searched his car, it was clear of pretty much anything. The floor mats on the driver's side and the passenger side were missing. Based on the indents in the carpet underneath where these mats should have been, the police believed they had actually been removed relatively recently. The mats were never found, but they did find a partially used bleach bottle in the trunk. So while Husto was in jail waiting to go to trial on the kidnapping charges with all this evidence just compounding on itself, the police continued the search for Linda. They looked in any spot they could link Husto to. They tracked his movements using cell phone records and security cameras. They followed him from the time Linda was kidnapped through Lancaster County, which included a lot of remote and wooded areas. Then they followed him as he drove to the area where Linda's stockings and bra were found later that day, and then back to his apartment where he cleaned his vehicle. When he got to his apartment, he was seen alone. So they searched all those areas they saw his cell phone crisscrossing. Because Husto later returned to where the clothing was buried multiple times, something like eight times in six or seven days, it was believed he possibly left Linda's body there initially, and then on one of these return trips, he moved it. 2,300 searchers put in 15,000 man-hours looking for Linda's remains. They used everything at their disposal, ground-penetrating radar, dogs, drones, experienced search and rescue teams were on this case, and they could not find her. Six months after Linda's disappearance in December 2020, while they did not have her body, they believed they had enough evidence that she was deceased and that Husto was responsible, so Husto Smoker was then charged with murder. It was in December when the murder charge came down and the arrest affidavit was made public that I heard what I think is the most disturbing part about this case— it's the part that makes you wonder if you are ever actually safe. The day before Linda's kidnapping, on June 20th, multiple Amish women said that there was a red four-door car driving past them. It stood out because the car would drive slowly by or would loop around and pass them a second or even a third time. Or the driver would stop ahead of them 
and they would see him watching them in his mirror. Most of these women were walking in groups, but one of them was alone, and she was spooked enough by this that she left the road and hid behind a barn. She watched as the red car pulled into a field and waited for a bit. She was afraid he was waiting for her. So the investigators pulled more security footage, this time from the day before Linda's kidnapping, and they saw the red Kia driving around the area. Husto's cell phone was pinging around that area as well. The state believed Husto was driving around looking for a victim. He didn't know Linda before this. She wasn't stalked ahead of time. But he also didn't just take a random chance opportunity. Linda was an Amish woman walking alone while he was driving around looking for a victim, like a true predator. Had that other young woman the night before not hidden behind the barn until he left, she very well could have been his victim. He was targeting Amish women. I am curious why I think the Amish community in Lancaster County deserves an answer to this, but one has not been forthcoming. In March 2021, at a preliminary hearing, the judge decided there was enough evidence to go forward with the murder case against Husto, and the state then announced they were considering seeking the death penalty. Whether this decision on the part of the state helped loosen Husto's lips or, as his attorney has claimed, it was Husto's desire to take responsibility, Husto played Let's make a deal with the state. We only recently have heard about the details of this deal, but it was absolutely speculated that a deal had been made when on April 21st, 2021, Linda's body was found. She had been missing for 10 months. Linda was found behind the place where Husto Smoker worked. This area had been searched before, but where Linda's remains were found was an area that was difficult to access. She had also been buried in a grave that was three and a half feet deep. This was not a shallow burial. And that is one of the reasons it was widely believed Husto had talked. How else would they have found her? Another reason was that it was leaked that people saw Husto Smoker near the area with the police right before the announcement that Linda's body was found. And we recently found out that was an accurate story. Husto initially tried to draw a map to where her body was, but when they couldn't find her based on that, they took him to the site. The body had been wrapped in a tarp and buried, again, like I said, three and a half feet deep. Due to the time between Linda's death and discovery, she had to be identified through dental records. However, because Husto Smoker led them there and she was found with the clothing she was last seen in, they knew it was her from the beginning. The forensic evidence and Husto's own statements to authorities filled out what really happened to Linda. Husto admitted he had spent those two days stalking Amish women. Again, 
the community deserves to know why. After Husto kidnapped Linda, he admitted that he strangled her, first using his arm and then using the shoelaces. He then stabbed her once in the neck to make sure she was dead. Though he denied sexually assaulting her, the autopsy indicated otherwise. Husto also confirmed that he first buried Linda where her bra and stockings had been found. It wasn't until he heard about her disappearance on the news that he realized how close that location was to her house. He was afraid these massive searches would discover her there. So Husto drove back out there two days later with a tarp and duct tape, wrapped up her remains, and went to where he worked to bury her deeper and in an area much more difficult to search. After Linda's body was found, she was able to have a proper burial, which was something that was very, very important to her family. And then we all waited three months to find out what kind of deal Husto Smoker got in exchange for giving the location of Linda's body. And I have to be honest, I was surprised at the deal they gave him. Based on what I've seen on social media, opinions are split on this. Husto agreed to plead guilty to murder in the third degree, tampering slash fabricating physical evidence, possession of an instrument of a crime, kidnapping, false imprisonment, and abuse of a corpse. Pennsylvania is one of only three states that has a third-degree murder charge, and all three states don't define it in quite the same way. So in Pennsylvania, third-degree murder is actually defined as any murder that isn't first or second degree. That is actually the definition on the books. It doesn't have a definition of its own. It's just defined by what it is not. And it also is not manslaughter, which is what I thought at first, because Pennsylvania does have manslaughter charges. This is just a third degree of murder. So here is where the controversy comes in. One, there was no charge for the sexual assault. There would be no justice for Linda for that crime. The other major controversy is that there is no way what Husto Smoker admitted he did didn't fit into murder one or murder two. And some people have expressed they're upset that the state didn't take this all the way to trial. They had a solid first-degree murder case. Husto had stalked Amish women over the course of two days. He planned this abduction. He bought things that morning to try to get away with it, like those gloves. And he got the lowest charge possible to still be a murder charge. Even the judge who accepted this plea deal stated some discomfort that it would be a parole board down the line who may let Husto Smoker out of prison. The state had a solid case for first or second degree murder, but what they didn't have, what Linda's family didn't have, was Linda. Husto had a huge bargaining chip. Without him leading them to the grave, it's fair to say Linda never would have been found where she was. And then there is the stress of a trial on the family, the possibility of an acquittal, or a technicality in him getting out on appeal. 
And honestly, the family okayed this plea deal. Their opinion matters more than anyone else's in this case. By making this deal, they were able to bring Linda home. And the chances that Husto Smoker walks out of prison a free man one day isn't really great. And if one day he does, he will very likely be an elderly man at the time. On Friday, July 23rd, 2021, Husto Smoker pleaded guilty in court. Linda's parents chose not to attend court that day. They said it was just too painful. A member of their community, Samuel Blank, spoke for them. He spoke about how forgiveness was part of their faith and that Linda's parents not attending had nothing to do with not being able to forgive. It was just because of emotional distress. Samuel assured Husto that both the family and the community would forgive him, though it would take some of them some time. Husto, I can say this about him, he looked at the people who spoke and gave victim impact statements. We've seen so many times when the families are trying to finally have their say in court, trying to address the defendant, and the defendant refuses to look at them. Husto did not refuse to look at them. And I'm not saying like he stared them down in a cold way. He was visibly emotional as he sat and listened, paying attention to what was being said. And then it was his turn to speak. Husto stood up and he addressed the people who were there, not just the judge. Again, he faced people. He apologized to the family and to the community for what he had done. He said he has thought about how he took memories away from the family, memories they would have made with Linda and time they would have shared. He said that he will always think of that when he shared a memory with his own family or shared a laugh with them that he had taken that from someone else. He also apologized to his own family, saying that he was raised better than that and that he had been loved better than that. And then it was time for the sentence, and his sentence is a little complicated because it isn't as straightforward as you would think. The first thing Husto Smoker faces time for is a parole violation. Committing murder while on parole is a pretty obvious violation. He could get up to 17 years on that alone. But it's up to the parole board and they will make their decision in the next couple of months. He has a minimum of a 35 and a half year sentence in Linda's case and a maximum of 71 years. He will not begin serving time for Linda's murder until he completes the parole violation sentence whatever that ends up being. These sentences are consecutive. He serves one at a time. So the maximum, all told, is 88 years. That's essentially a life sentence. The minimum, even if the parole board decides to just let this violation slide, which I don't anticipate, is 35 and a half years. He won't be eligible for parole until he is 70 years old, but likely not until he's even older and likely not at all. I do not anticipate him serving the minimum on anything. But this is where the judge expressed some discomfort that the parole board, both with the violation and down the road, are really who are determining his sentence. 
As for some explanation as to why Justo Smoker chose to take a life that day, his attorney admits that he himself struggles with the Justo he has gotten to know after his arrest with the person who committed this horrible crime. He personally believes that alcohol and Justo's past abuse while he was in the orphanage contributed in some way. Justo had been abused in every way possible in the orphanage before he and his siblings were adopted. Justo medicated his trauma and depression with alcohol, which did lead to frequent blackouts, though we know that's not what happened here. Justo Smoker planned this. There is no clear explanation for what he did. Maybe we call these contributing factors. When it comes to sentencing, we call them mitigating factors. But none of it really explains what happened, why he targeted Amish women, why he targeted Linda. We don't know. Husto's attorney said that Husto hopes now to go into the prison system and counsel and help other angry young men so that they can one day get out and lead productive lives, the life he didn't lead. And you know what? If that's his purpose in life, good for him, because it looks like he has the rest of his life in prison to pursue this goal. As for Linda's family and her community, they are living their faith, working through both their grief and going through the process of forgiveness. We often speak about forgiveness as a goal, as something that we do for ourselves, but for the Amish, for Linda's family, for what Linda would want, this forgiveness goes deeper than that. It is part of their faith tradition. It is something they're commanded to do, and I hope that together as a community, they can get themselves there. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crime Lines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crime Lines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 